Thank you, Missy. Beautiful job. Take your Bibles, turn back again. Matthew chapter 27 and verse number 45. Matthew 27 and verse number 45. It's noon on Friday afternoon. Several hundred people have gathered on a hill just outside the city of Jerusalem to witness the spectacle. Three crosses stand on a place called Skull Hill that has been readied for three crucifixions. Two of the men are known criminals, but the third, he's entirely different. He's a preacher, and by all rumors, a healer as well. Many had thought him to be the long-awaited promised Messiah of Israel. It was a messy and bloody business to nail three men who had already been severely beaten to a cross. There were cries and groans and screams and jeers. But all in all, things had gone pretty smoothly. But suddenly, at noon, things changed dramatically. I want to share with you this morning three things about the death of the king. First of all, I want you to notice with me the specifics of his death, beginning in verse number 45. And now from the sixth hour, which is about noon, until the ninth hour, which is about three o'clock in the afternoon, there was darkness over all the earth. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabbatane. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was crucified at nine in the morning. But at noon, something strange happened, which is recorded in all of the gospel histories. Instead of the maximum daylight, total darkness came upon the land and lasted for three hours. Notice with me, first of all, the curtain of darkness. Have you ever been at home at night with all your lights on and suddenly the power went off? Might have happened last night. It's not all that unusual around here. That's what it must have been like on the day at the cross. Since darkness is associated with judgment in the Bible, the crowd must have gotten more and more uncomfortable with each passing minute. Surely some of those who were present associated the darkness with the plague of darkness during the time of the Exodus. The plague lasted for three days, and immediately preceding the tenth plague, which was the Passover. This was the time when the lambs were killed and their blood was applied to the door frames of the homes 
so that the angel of death would pass over them. Many, year, many people over the years have tried to explain what happened during the hours of noon to three o'clock and why there was darkness. Some have suggested that it was an eclipse. However, the darkness lasted much longer than any eclipse because it wasn't minutes, it was hours. The darkness lasted three hours and a solar eclipse is over in a matter of minutes. No, this was a supernatural darkness. There was also a cry of desolation. About three o'clock in the afternoon, Jesus cried out and with a loud voice said, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabatane, which is Arabic, meaning, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? At the moment of Jesus' cry, the priests were offering the evening sacrifice in the holy place of the temple. And they're going to be startled to see that thick veil separating the holy of holies, supernaturally torn apart from the top to the bottom. We know by comparing all the gospel accounts that Jesus made seven statements from the cross in all. Matthew, however, chooses to record only one. And even then he doesn't record his words. Luke tells us exactly what Jesus said. He said, Father, and to your hands I commit my spirit. His first words on the cross had been, Father, forgive them. His last words were, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. But in between, he had cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? I want you to notice, he says, My God. It is the only time recorded in Scripture in which Jesus does not refer to God as his Father. Because at this agonizing moment, the Father has turned His back on His Son as Jesus bore the sins of the whole world. But as Jesus makes this statement, that's no longer true. Jesus dies with the knowledge that the price has been paid in full, that the cup has been emptied, that the burden has been borne, that the estrangement has ended. It's interesting that you may or may not be aware that these words are a quote from Psalm 31 and verse 5. It was apparently a prayer that Jewish mothers taught their children. It might have been the first scripture that children really learned. It was a prayer that they taught their children to pray as they went to sleep at night, much like the prayer that most of you learned as a child. Now I lay me down to sleep, and if I should die before I wake, I pray my soul to keep. Matthew tells us that only that Jesus yielded up his spirit, but again, Luke tells us that Jesus does so with the words, I commit my spirit. 
Jesus was allowing us to know something very important that what he was doing, he was doing voluntarily. In John chapter 10, Jesus spoke about this aspect of his death. In verse 11, he says, I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. And in verse 17, he says, I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have the power to lay it down, and I have the power to take it again. Jesus said, I commit my spirit. It was a free and voluntary act. Paul summed it up for us in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 25 when he says, And Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. The second thing I want you to note with me this morning is the results of his death. Matthew recounts several dramatic things that occur at the death of Jesus. First of all, there is the torn curtain. Verse number 51, Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth quaked, and the rocks were split. The veil, or curtain, was between the sanctuary and the Holy of Holies, that place where only the high priest could go. This curtain symbolized the barrier between God and man because of man's sin. Because of God's holiness and man's sin, people were forbidden to come into the presence of God. Access to the Holy of Holies, the place where one met with God, was guarded by a curtain that was 60 feet high and 30 feet wide. Only one man could enter the most holy place, the high priest. He could only enter the, high, the holy place once each year on the Day of Atonement. He must wear special garments. He must bring with him the blood of a sacrifice. He must sprinkle the blood on the golden mercy seat that was the lid of the Ark of the Covenant which contained the Ten Commandments. If anyone besides the high priest ever entered the most holy place, he would be struck down. If the high priest entered on any other day than the Day of the Atonement, he would be struck down. If the high priest came without the blood of a sacrifice, he would be struck down. When the high priest entered... He did so with great anxiety because he knew he was going into the very presence of God and he knew that he could be struck dead. The thick veil or the curtain that separated people from the presence of God, though, was torn in two. Romans chapter 5 and verses 1 and 2 put it this way. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. 
The Hebrew writer gives us the theology of that miracle in Hebrews chapter 10. He says in verse 19, Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiness by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh. And having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Any stay-at-home mom can tell you that the pain of domestic labor is not the difficulty of the task, but rather its repetition. One must wash the dishes, straighten up the house, pick up after the family every day. Any lady would be excited if when you clean the floor or you wash the dishes, you picked up the house, you never had to do it ever again. But that's a fantasy, not fact. But spiritually, that's what Jesus did for us when he offered himself as the once-for-all-time sacrifice for sin. Hebrews 10, 12 says, And after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, he sat down at the right hand of God. The writer attempts to explain it to us when he says in Hebrews 10, verse 4, It is not possible with the blood of bulls and goats that it should take away sins. In other words, it's not possible that that blood would save anyone. And then Jesus came, who is called a high priest after the order of, of Melchizedek, when he died on the cross, when he finished the work of atonement, when he declared, Telestai, it is finished, and breathed his last by committing his spirit to the Father, at that moment, the curtain was split supernaturally, opening up a new and living way for every person who trust in the atonement of Jesus Christ. When Jesus died, everything that the Old Testament sacrifices pointed to were fulfilled. There was no need for further sacrifices, and the way to God was open to all those who trusted in Jesus. God revealed that in a dramatic way, by tearing the veil. But not only was the curtain torn, the tombs were opened. And verse 52 says, And the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Matthew describes that the graves were opened to show that Jesus' death defeated the power of sin and death. These individuals were 
raised to prove Jesus had power over death. But I do want you to note they were not resurrected. They were risen. There is a difference. When someone is resurrected, they are alive and never die again. These individuals, as far as we know, were like Lazarus. In that they were temporarily restored to life, but they eventually died again. There are so many things that we'd like to ask these individuals. Did they, did they rise at the age they were when they died, or were they restored to youth and vigor? Did they explain what happened to them, to the people that they met? There are so many things that we'd like to know, but those questions aside, the, the point is clear. Jesus not only broke the chains of death for himself, but for all those who turned to him in faith. The tearing of the veil symbolizes that Jesus' sacrificial death blots out sin, defeats the powers of evil and death, and opens up access to God. And the opening of the tombs represent the truth that Jesus' death wins the resurrection of his followers. Third and finally this morning, the responses <clears throat> to his death. You may find all that we've discussed this morning interesting, but still find yourself asking the question, so what? So what? What does that mean to me? What I want you to see is that the death of Jesus did not leave people indifferent. First of all, there is an example of saving faith in the confession of the centurion in verse 54. And so when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they feared greatly, saying, truly this was the Son of God. The centurion would have been the commander of, over the execution detail. The early church sometimes gave this centurion the name Loganus. We can guess that he had become somewhat calloused to this gruesome duty of conducting executions because people who have that kind of work, whether they be a medical examiner or CSI, they have to become emotionally detached from what they're doing. But the text says that the men who had crucified Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, and they feared greatly. The word that is translated fear is the word that we get our English word phobia from. It is a word that means sheer terror. It means uh, the kind that causes rapid heartbeat and profuse sweating and extreme anxiety. Mark tells us that it was the centurion who actually spoke those words. But Matthew makes it clear that he spoke for all of his men as well when he said, truly this was the Son of God. 
From Luke, we learn that the centurion and presumably the other soldiers as well not only made a confession of the deity of Christ, it says they went on and they began praising God. This pagan Roman soldier recognized something that their Jewish religious leaders had denied. Jesus was not a bad man, but a righteous man. He was not a blasphemer, but he was actually God in human flesh. The Roman centurion on duty was an eyewitness to the death of Jesus, and he saw the miracle. Arthur Max Licato has suggested what it might have been like and what might have went through the centurion's mind that day. He says, The condemned looked like anything but a king. His face was lumpy and bruised, his back arched slightly, and his eyes downcast. Some harmless hick, thought the centurion. What could he have done? His eyes were strangely calm as they stared from behind the bloody mask. For just a moment, he looked at the centurion for a second. The Roman looked into the purest eyes he had ever seen. As he watched the soldier grab the Nazarene and yank him to the ground, something told him this was not going to be a normal day. As the hours wore on, he didn't know what to do with the Nazarene's silence. He didn't know what to do with his kindness, but most of all, he was perplexed by the darkness. One minute the sun, the next the darkness. One minute the heat, the next a chilly breeze. For a long while, the centurion sat on a rock and stared at the three silhouetted figures, their heads limp, occasionally rolling from side to side. Suddenly, the one in the center ceased to do so. It yanked itself upright. Its eyes opened in a flash of white. A roar sliced the silence. It is finished. It wasn't a yell. It wasn't a scream. It was a roar. A lion's roar. From what world that roar came, the centurion didn't know, but it certainly wasn't this one. The centurion looked up into the face of this one near death. His head was heavy with pain. He could hardly move, but his eyes, they were unquenchable. They were the eyes of God. He turned and watched as the eyes of Jesus lifted and looked toward home. He listened as the parched lips parted and the swollen tongue spoke for the last time. Father, into your hands I entrust my spirit. Had not the centurion said it, the rocks would have. As would have the angels and the stars and even the demons. But he did say it. It fell to a nameless foreigner to state what they all knew. Surely this man was the Son of God. Jesus' prayer, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. 
did not go unanswered. As R.C. Sproul says, it seems that the first trophy of grace given to Jesus after his death was the Gentile soldier who had crucified him. We have not only an example of saving faith, we have an example of serving faith. The loyalty of the women in verses 55 and 56. And many women who followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, were looking on from afar. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. At a time when all the male disciples had abandoned Jesus, a group of women stood looking on. It says that they were watching from a distance, but at least they were still there. They were the last at the cross and the first at the tomb. Matthew says that these women were the ones who had ministered to Jesus and his disciples. And the word ministering is the same word that we translate deacon. It means serving. The ministry of godly women has always had a profound significance in the church. Jesus restored and reaffirmed to women the dignity and worth as persons fully equal to men, as humans created in the image of God and co-workers with men in the carrying out of God's will on earth. The first of the three women Matthew mentions, Mary Magdalene was not married. The second woman was identified by her children. The third was identified by her husband. The implication seems to be that divine dignity is bestowed on all the categories that a woman might hold. But in the end, it comes down to this. Will you be inspired by his story or will you be transformed by his story? The people who are inspired may be encouraged to work harder and be nicer. They may see Jesus as a moral model of how life should be lived. They may decide to straighten up their lives. They may be even inspired to make church a bigger part of their lives. These people can honestly say that Jesus has changed their lives. But those who are transformed recognize that Jesus is much more than a good moral example. He is much more than a good teacher. He is a Savior for those who recognize that they are sinners and that trying harder and being nicer doesn't change the fact that they are sinners. Change occurs when we repent of our sins and we accept the payment that Jesus made for us. Transformation is a radical change of our nature. Let's pray.
Father, we pray this morning for transformation, the transformation of our lives, that we would be transformed from the inside out, not content to just be made over, not content just to be inspired, that we might work harder or be nicer, not that we don't need to do those things, but that we might recognize that we are sinners and that our sin stands between us and you, but that Jesus has already paid the penalty for our sin on the cross. And all we must do is to accept that payment, accept the free, free gift that is being offered to us. Father, I pray that if there is one here this morning that has never accepted Jesus as their personal Lord and Savior, never recognized that they are a sinner, at least to the point that they recognized and repented of that sin and asked the Lord Jesus Christ to save them. I pray that you'd help them to understand that they can do that this morning. They can leave this place knowing that they have a home in heaven, knowing that they have established a forever relationship with you. For all of us, Lord, I pray that we might make our transformation obvious to those around us. That we might be willing to explain how we are different and why we are different because of what Jesus has done in our lives. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with me, please, Brother Steve is going to be here.